When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You wrote an autobiography called What a Party, and nothing describes Governor Terry McAuliffe of Virginia better than that phrase. To him, life has been a party, and uh, he has been at the center of it uh, from the time he was a kid uh, to today, the most ebullient character in American politics, and in the middle of some of the most controversial issues uh, of the day as well. He came to the Institute of Politics uh, the other day, and we talked about all of that. Governor Terry McAuliffe, really great to see you again and to have you at the Institute of Politics. And, uh, you know, uh, getting ready for this uh, conversation, I reviewed uh, your biography and remi- I was reminded of just uh, just what a, a hustler you were from the earliest days. Uh, you started your own business when you were like in high school. 14. Yeah. You know, I needed to start a business. I was going to have to earn money if I was going to go to college. So I started McCall Driveway Maintenance at the age of 14. Started sealing driveways yep. in my neighborhood of Syracuse, New York. And then 15, David, I had to go beg. I started doing parking lots, but in order to do parking lots, you need a truck because you got to buy the tar and big 50-gallon barrels. You know, I'm 15 years old. I remember I called up my uh, Uncle Billy Byrne, owned Byrne Dairy. I said, Billy, you got to This is in Syracuse. Up in Syracuse, New York. Mm-hmm. So what happens in Syracuse, the weather's so bad. I mean, you understand some yeah. of that here, obviously, yeah. in Chicago. Yes. But uh, the driveways, if you don't put that sealer coat on it, what will happen is water will get in, it will freeze, expand, and ruin your driveway or your parking lot. So you got to seal it. So where'd you learn? Uh, did you seal your own driveway first? Is that what happened? I'll tell you. I was walking home. I'd been caddying. I caddied as a young man, two golf bags up and down hills for five hours, and was paid $8. And I said, I'm throwing my life away. i got <laughs> to start my own business. So literally walking home, uh, I saw a guy out putting that hot tar on. I said, you know what? They'll hire a young kid to do that. I went home. I convinced my mother. She took me down to Kmart. I bought a couple five-gallon barrels and a little brush, swept the driveway, and then I sealed our driveway. And I said, oh, man, this is easy. So then I went home, literally typed up a letter, and handed out all over my neighborhood. I had 10 jobs my first week. And I used to go around the neighborhood with a wagon, a little red flyer wagon with my two barrels in it, my brushes in it, and I'd go around and do the jobs. It was very lucrative business. And then I said, I got to go big. I got to start doing parking lots. Uh, but you couldn't use the five-gallon barrels. You had to get the big 50-gallon. And then I would go out to Agway, and they put a big hose in it. So you're 14 or 15. Like, who drives the truck? Well, that's a great story. So at 15, I said, I got to get this big truck. So my <laughs> Uncle Billy said, yeah, Terry, we got some out in Cicero, New York, an old graveyard of old dairy trucks. He said, we'll go out someday. I said, no, Uncle Billy, I need it today. He said, we're not going today. But he had told me where the lot was. 
So I drove out with my buddy Joey Hartnett. Brought a, you know, I was good at fixing things up. I brought a battery and spark plugs and, and gas and literally went out to Cicero, found the Burn Dairy Graveyard for trucks. There had to be 20 or 30 there, David. And I found one that I wanted, beautiful, huge old dairy truck. <laughs> and I worked on it for an hour, two hours. And I'll tell you to this day, David, I get up in the cab. I'm 15 years old. Put the key in this gigantic truck, and when that engine turned, I'm telling you, I still get goosebumps to this day. It was one of the most exciting days of my life. I drove I, it home. I, down thought, I thought you were going to tell me to this day, I still ride around in that truck, and I, that was where I was getting off. The, <laughs> that was where I was getting. But I off drove this the truck story. home to my house mm-hmm. on Interstate 81, past the State Police, New York State Police substation. But wait, but did you have a license to drive? I'm just going to tell you that I had no <laughs> license plate and no license. But I was an entrepreneur. I'm hitting the horn, waving at the cops. They're waving back at me. Got home, repainted the truck up, and I was in business. Uh-huh. And then went out and got my learner's permit. But, I, you know, I was an entrepreneur. What, and uh, you say t- hustler. I say that in a very respectful way. I, 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 I meant it in a respectful no, no, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you uh, tell me about your folks? Um, your dad was sort of partly involved in politics. He right? was. He was the treasurer of the Onondaga County Democratic Party for years. Loved politics. Always active in it, you know, started me going door to door, literally probably, David, seven or eight years old. I started canvassing at a very young age. Uh, Four boys in the family, mother, you know, housewife. Uh, She, uh, for a while, she worked in a flower store as a clerk. And, you know, it was just a great upbringing, Irish Catholic upbringing in Syracuse, New York. Um, But, you know, I mean, uh, beautiful place to be from. It's tough winters, as you know, up there, but just a, just a great upbringing. Three older brothers. I'm the baby of, of four brothers, but always was an entrepreneur. Started the business, and then I took the money from the driveway business and bought a big, gigantic snowplower uh, blower, and which I would get up at four in the morning. And as you know, just like here in Chicago, I get cold. up at four and I do twenty uh, driveways, and I'd take that snowblower literally around my neighborhoods and clear. You had to clear it, or else you couldn't get out of your driveway in the morning. My, uh, some I read somewhere that you made your your mom answer your home phone like McCall of Driveway Ceiling Company or something? Every summer, she would answer the phone at our house, McCall of Driveway Maintenance. How, how'd she feel about that? She loved it. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> I'd take her on the, out, on, out on the road with me. She loved it. But literally all over Syracuse, this gigantic truck. And I repainted it, house paint, brown paint with yellow letters. I remember it like it was yesterday. McCall of Driveway Maintenance, commercial, residential, ceiling and repair, Four seven eight two five zero eight. That was my phone number, and we painted it. My <laughs> buddy, a uh, friend of mine, uh, helped me paint it up one day, and I was in business and did it for years. And did you hire other people to? Had a bunch of people working for me. Yeah, it was a great time. Everybody worked for me. We, you know, especially with the parking lots, and uh, you know, back then, uh, statute of limitation is gone. You know, once we were done, you know, we'd sit around, and uh, the <laughs> bonus might have been a six pack of beer or something. That was probably when I was more seventeen or eighteen, but. Yeah, it was fun. It was a great experience. So, you know, I, I sold uh, the company every day. I got out there bringing the business in. I worked on the company, but a very good experience as a very young man learning how to run a business. Yeah. Meanwhile, you got elected class president, right? And, I did. And, and I read that you uh, that you uh, made a promise that was very compelling about <laughs> keg parties at the end of each week, yeah, very which, good research. which is which is a a winning, winning platform. I'm, I'm a trained professional, and I'm here to tell you that's a winning platform and in, let me a, tell you this, in a high school election. Not only winning platform, but let me tell you, because I think that pledge, today I still hold the record for the most votes ever received by a student <laughs> council president at Bishop Ludden High School. How did uh, the people at, at who ran the high school feel about your promise? 
Uh, they probably weren't all too excited, but I won, and <laughs> and I honored that commitment. <laughs> did uh, did you? Uh, and then you went off to college. So this did this end the sealing business? No, uh, you did it in I the would summer? do that in summers when I came uh-huh. home from the college. I finally Ca- sold the Catholic business University, after. and yep, and that's where I first met Tom Donlin. Yeah, Tom Donlin, who. Uh, Became the national security advisor for President Obama, served yeah. in the State Department under President Clinton. That's right. Really a great guy. Yeah, so he and I have been great friends in college. He was a year older than me. And he, ended, he ended up going to work for Hamilton Jordan uh, in the Carter White House. So after I got out of school, I was accepted and going to Georgetown Law School. I'd been there about a week or two. We all lived in a group house, 14 guys, a lot of fun, you know, keg in the bathtub and all. And it was a good time. And Tom <laughs> said, hey, you want to work on the campaign? And uh, I'd actually had a scholarship for law school, and I said, you know what? I can always go to law school. I love politics. I love presidential politics. So I left law school, called my mother. She broke into tears, throwing my career away. But I ended up work, going to work on the Carter campaign, and David through one thing after another. I'm 22, 23 right. years old. And, uh, and, you're, and, and you become finance chair. Become, uh, the youngest in the history of our country. I'd end up raising more money. I didn't know anything. They literally send me into a city and say, raise 300 grand. And literally I'd go through the phone books and all of that. And back then, people forget this. President Carter, this was the reelect, yeah, did he, not campaign in the election. People, young people today would find that almost hard to believe. But due to the Iranian hostage crisis, he had what you called the Rose Garden strategy, never campaigned for president. His wife and Walter Mondale and others and Neil Goldschmidt, all these other, the cabinet did it all. He didn't. It's fair to say he wasn't a particularly eager fundraiser either. No, I think it was not the easy, but we ended up doing what we needed to do. And what a great experience for me as a young kid. I ended up going to David like, listen, I hadn't really been out of Syracuse hardly at all. I ended up going to 40 states. And literally they would drop me in a city and say, you're in Orlando, Florida, raise 300 grand. Rose and Carter will be there in three weeks. And I would just have to go. Hustled up. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Why? What, what is it that you loved about it? Well, I always. A lot loved- of people don't like calling people and asking them for money. That's, a, that's probably a fair point. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I say, I started a business at a young age. You know, I never take rejection personally. I always say, you know, you can hate me, hate my candidate, just say no. And but, you know, I do believe as a young kid who is successful at a very young age. And then I, you know, I was our youngest bank chairman in the history of our country. I mean, I was a real entrepreneur. I started a lot of companies. Politics helped in that, right? I mean, those connections that you made through connections politics. Connections always help. The ability every day to be out talking to people will always will give you more confidence. And you're talking to people who have resources, who are successful. So those contacts are pretty beneficial. Yeah, but even more important, the contacts. It's a very important point. I would. It is what it is. Your brain is wired the way it is. You know, I'd meet the richest, wealthiest people in the country out raising money. And you, you could get in to see anybody who worked for the President of the United States. I would always think to myself, well, if that person can do it. I sure as heck can do it. So, you know, it was almost a motivator. Like, why did I, at 28 years old, go out and start a bank? You know what I mean? I'd met all these people. So the best benefit I had was it exposed me to things that I never, David, would ever have been exposed to. Honestly, sitting back at home, which I loved up in Syracuse, New York. But it opened my eyes to new ideas, new businesses. And it gave me the impetus to say, well, heck, if he can do it, I can do it too. I'm going to, uh, I, I just want to uh well, let's move forward with your story because I have questions about uh, the Democratic Party today yep. and fundraising. But you know, you uh, uh, 
you went on and you were associated with, uh, you worked for Walter Mondale in, yep. in 84, raising money for yep. him. You got associated with Tony Coelho, who Tony, ran the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Congressman Coelho. Yep. Dick uh, Gephardt. Legendary yep. head of the DCCC. Yep. Dick Gephardt, who uh, became the Democratic leader yep. and hasn't ran for president yep. twice. Yeah, uh, I served as his finance chair uh, back when he ran for president. Back in 88. In, in 88. And, you know. Uh, one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet in American politics. Yeah, you were very devoted to him. He loved him. Great, just a great guy. Tony was a great You know, I listen, it, you're not going to work for someone. Remember, I wasn't getting paid for any of this. I do this as a volunteer. I don't take, you know, I do this as this is my vocation. But you started a lobbying firm in Washington, and it couldn't have hurt to have relationships with these people. Well, once I started to work for Dick, it was a law firm that I actually walked away from. So, mm-hmm. I mean, all of that time, I was not in the firm at all. I'd left that before that. But, you know, you don't do it for, I mean, m- my money and the money that I've been successful at was from business. And, you know, I've built 6,000 homes. I owned a major home building company and uh, shopping center, apartment units. I mean, I love the act of business. I've never lobbied a day in my life. It's just, but listen, the whole idea, you're out there meeting people. That's, you know, part of, part of life and life's experiences. Uh and then in 92, you worked for Tom Harkin when mm-hmm. he was running for president. That's, that struck me as interesting because uh, you uh, are known as uh, Bill Clinton's guy. I mean, everybody knows how close that relationship is. But he, you were not working for Bill Clinton when he first ran for president in 1992. No, and I'd met with the president, President Clinton back then. But I'm a very loyal guy, and I, Dick was thinking of running again, if you remember. Right, I, I do. Dick mm-hmm. was running. And Tom Nobody, Hark- the interesting thing about that election is very, a lot of people took a pass on it because yeah, at the time right. you had to make a decision. George H.W. Bush yeah. had just, uh, had just uh, led the uh, first Iraq war. That's right. And was viewed as his approval rating was like in the 80s, and a lot of Democrats, Mario Cuomo, Gephardt, and others took a pass That's on right. it. That's right. But, well, you uh, remember the infamous story, Mario Cuomo, like had a plane right up in Albany ready to fly to New right, Hampshire, New Hampshire yeah. and, and just, just didn't do it. Yeah. And I knew Tom Harkin for a long time, great Irish Catholic. I love Tom Harkin. Every birthday, I get a package, a bottle of Irish whiskey from Tom Harkin. Uh-huh. I mean, that's just the kind of guy he was. I love Tom Harkin. So we and I, for me, it's personal. As I say, I don't get paid to do this. This was volunteer work. You've got to be passionate about your candidate. And I think friendship's the most important thing. And I told President Clinton back then, I mean, listen, one thing he always understood is friendships, relationships. Uh, but as soon as Tom folded, then, then I went out and then chaired a huge event for the pr- President Clinton then back in Little Rock. Um, but, you know, I've had a lot of great relationships. To me, it's personal. It's friendship. I but mean, that, you can't tell me out. about how that relationship developed, though, because uh, you, you it really evolved over that period uh, from the time you 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 helped him there yep. through the REALEC when you actually yep. led his fundraising operation. Yep. Well, I first met the president and Hillary uh, back in, I think it was 1981, right after the election, or 1980, when it was over. There was a meeting of governors. He was just defeated, as you know, um, from yes. being governor of Arkansas, and I was now in charge of the f- fundraising for the DNC then. And it's a little-known fact that he came up to the meeting and asked for a private meeting with me, he and Hillary. Why? He was going to run for chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Really? People don't know that. You know who else? You know, Nancy Pelosi, George Mm -hmm. Mitchell. There's a whole line of folks who uh, actually, so President Clinton at that time was a defeated candidate and wanted to run for DNC chair uh, back then. And he wanted to know about the finances. And that's when we first met. 
which it, it, DNC chair is, it, it used to be a more attractive job when the uh, president of another party was in the White House. The only time to have the, the, the fulcrum yeah. of that. Uh, well, let me ask you this now. And yeah. you, 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 you've done that job and you've been a. Uh, Loved it. Yeah. This, uh, this is a period where you would expect that to be the case. The DNC and all the party organizations are having a hard time raising money. Candidates are raising money, like up the wazoo. Yep. Uh, it's a record year for for Democratic candidates running yep. and for the amount of money they're raising. Why aren't people – now, I know the law changed is one reason, but, but what is it that's keeping people from – uh, contributing to the party, and what does it say about the party organizations? Yeah, and I got to say, this should be a record year for fundraising for the party, no question. When I became chair, it was after the horrible debacle of Florida and, and Gore, who actually won the election. We didn't get the prize. And so we went in, and I took over the party. And it was a, you know, I loved being chair of the party. It was at a time, you know, Republican had the White House, so you get to be out there every single day getting your points out there. But for me, it was about building the party for the 21st century. You know, I had to build the headquarters, David. First, I had to get us out of a horrible debt, uh, build the new national headquarters. We didn't have a voter file, believe it or not. I had to go out to all 50 state chairs and say, I will pay for all of this. We built the first data file for the Democratic National Committee. You're not going to believe it. In 2002, we didn't have one. 50 states had it, but we brought all that. We built all the new technology. I got our party out of the debt for the first time in modern history. And actually, when I handed the party the reins over to Howard Dean, no debt for the first time ever in the party, millions of dollars in the bank, a spanking new headquarters with all the technology in the first voter file. So for me, it was building to get that party. People always, you know, what, what's the party role and all that? I mean, as you know, David, it's the infrastructure. They run the guts of the party. They're not, the, you know, people ask me all the time, who's the leader of the party today? Right. I'll tell you the leader of the party is. It's the grassroots of our, in our party. They're the I ones that's that... That's not well understood. I get that question all the time, too. Yeah. You know, absent a presidential candidate, uh, there's no one person who's going no. to be the leader of a party. And I know yeah. some people want President Obama to take up that role and so on. Yeah. But that's not really the role that former no. presidents play. No. Even in the Trump era, that's no. not the role that former presidents play. Pe- people have to step up and ultimately a candidate will emerge. That's right. Uh, but look at the grassroots. They've been driving in debate. Uh, the town hall meetings, as you see, yeah. you know, they're flushing members of Congress out who are refusing to have town hall meetings. They've led the revolt on health care and so yeah. forth. So, you know, you're right. Till we have a nominee of the party. But the part, the DNC runs infrastructure, runs the guts, runs the primaries. I changed the primary calendar, the first guy in modern history to change it. You know, I wanted the party to be a little bit more reflective. I love Iowa, New Hampshire, but... You know, it's not reflective of the demographics of our party. So I brought Michigan up, as you know. I brought South Carolina up. Mm -hmm. I brought Arizona up. I brought New Mexico up for the first time to really represent so the African-American community and the Hispanic community could have an earlier say in our presidential primary process. And we need to look at that. It's very important. But the party, you know, this is a time with Donald Trump. I can tell you in Virginia today, he's like 31 percent approval rating. Uh, this is the time we got elections coming up very shortly. We're going to sweep all three. Let's talk about that. Okay. Yeah, in 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 a bit about Virginia and where we are, uh, where we are today. I ask you this question as someone who was involved in with the, the administration, very devoted to uh, President Obama, and I was involved in the political operation uh, and worked on both campaigns. Uh, do you think that uh, we? 
failed in the last decade relative to the infrastructure of the party? Should should we should more have been done to build the infrastructure? I feel that way, yeah. and I you know I feel somewhat responsible for that failure. And, and listen, I, you know I had a long talk with President Obama the last week in office. Myself and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer went over and spent about an hour and a half with the president to talk about you know I think where we have failed as a party. You know we all get all gassed up and ginned up for the presidential election. We raise billions of dollars, and then they go away for four years. And we haven't done what we need to do at the state and local level. And I'm obsessed by this topic because we're now doing this redistricting. But, I mean, you know the numbers, David. I think we've lost 978 state legislative seats in the last eight years, 30 chambers. Uh, 70% of the chambers in America today are now controlled by the Republicans. We're down to 15 governors lost, what, 67 House seats. We've got to do a better job of going part, in. Part of that, of course, was due to the redistricting of 2010, 10. which was really, they they caught the calendar in the right year. Uh, that was damaging. But some of it was, you know, the Republican Party, the Koch brothers, That's right. uh, have devoted a lot of resources to building That's infrastructure right. at the grassroots, to recruiting candidates, supporting candidates. And the Democratic Party hasn't done that, yeah. uh, certainly not to that degree. And I think that's a big part of the story. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do with this new group called the National Democratic Redistricting and President's involved, Eric Holder's involved, and mm-hmm. Nancy and I have been traveling the country helping to raise money for it. Because what I'm very concerned about as a Democrat, that 2020 we will have the new census, 2021, every line in America will be redrawn. Under the set of circumstances we have today, 70% will be drawn by very conservative Republican legislatures. The only person who can stop that is a Democratic governor. And we are down to 15, one five today in America. Now, we have 36 races coming up next year, so I want to devote a lot of time. We have got to get Democratic governors in office because what's happening, David, is forget about Congress. There's nothing happening there. And this is what the Koch brothers figured out. They said, let's go at the state and local level. All the rollback of women's rights, LGBT rights, environmental rights, pro-gun, anti-voting is happening at the state. You know, I vetoed a bill this year in in order to get an absentee ballot. You have to fax in your driver's license. I had to veto a bill that you could sell machine guns out of our gun stores. I mean, it is systematically happening state by state by state. We got to get in the game and we got to start winning some of these governorships uh, because that is the brick wall to stop what's going to happen in 2021. Uh, You as an entrepreneur will appreciate that I have to take a short break for a word from our Oh, yes, we got to pay for it. Thank you. We're back with uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe. Nobody ever really figured you as a, a guy who would run for public office. You were always uh, uh, there uh, and very, very supportive. You ran the party. You weren't seen as a policy guy. Uh, but you you made the decision to run for governor of Virginia. Uh, what What drove you to do that? Well, and listen, I think, you know, I'd had big roles in the party. I had been in business. I, I thought I would bring more policy experience and fairness than anybody else. We got too many politicians who are in who, well, I'm a lawyer. I should say that. I did go back to Georgetown, graduated it. But, you know, we need people in elective office who've had some real-life experiences who understand the challenges that people are facing every day. We got too many people in office. They're career politicians. That's all they've ever done. So I figured I could bring a wealth of having started over 30 different companies in a variety of different uh, 
avenues, bring that experience, having run the party. I'd always wanted to run, but something always came up. You know, you know, the Clintons were a longtime friend and a longtime obligation that I had. But once, you know, I've, you know, after the 2008 race, I had chaired her campaign. I figured it's time I'm going to go do it myself. I ran in 09, which was an auspicious move, to be honest with you, David. Most people didn't even know I lived in Virginia. But Dorothy and I had lived there with our five children uh, for about 20 years. But I ran in 09. I was defeated in the primary. I got up the next day. And that issue was part of the, I mean, you had a three-way race that was contentious. Yeah. And- And your roots in Virginia were... Questioned. Questioned. And they don't like, in fairness, I mean, I get a kick. I was always called a carpetbagger because I was from New York. But I remind you, you know, Bob McDonald, who was the sitting governor, wasn't born in Virginia. Tim Kaine was not born in Virginia. Mark Warner was not born in Virginia. Uh, George Allen was not born in Virginia. So if you look at our last history of governors, none of them. But I had more national profile when I ran. And in fairness, as everybody just heard, a lot of good Syracuse stories, too. Yeah, right. So so people identified you with with that. uh, You know, I should. I I skipped that. I wasn't born there. But you know what, David? I chose to go there. I could have gone anywhere I wanted. I picked Virginia, which I always said was a better, you know, you, I didn't get to pick tell my mother where to be born. She made that decision for me. Yeah. I guess the response to that would be, you know, you could you could join the choir, but you don't necessarily become the choir director right away. You got to sing a little before you. But you're but you're uh but but you you overcame that. Uh, before yeah. I get to that, I I skipped over a bit of history that we should cover here. I was involved in that 2008 campaign, as you know. In fact, I remember me seeing you at the Cafe Milano in Washington uh, with your core of fundraisers. It was like, uh, and, and I was, I think I was there with a, Adam Nagurney from the Times or something, and I was sitting there having dinner. And, and what month we end, we know? This was right at the beginning of okay. the campaign. Yeah. And you came over and uh, gave us, gave me a raft of whatever, uh, about uh, how much this team that you had there was going to raise. And I did feel a little like the Little Sisters of the Poor lined up against (laughs) the Green Bay Packers. Uh, uh, But what? what, talk to me about uh, Hillary and um, both campaigns. And there, you know, you are a, you're, you're a palpably gregarious, open, maybe sometimes to your detriment, but uh, out there kind of personality. Well, I would never say to my detriment. Yeah. I'm tired of politicians, David, who put their finger up trying to find out the windows. You will never, ever wonder where I'm coming from. Yeah. That can be to your detriment at times. But yeah, that's okay. You say Listen, no, 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 no. Listen, I you fundamentally believe I fundamentally I fundamentally believe that uh, authenticity is yeah, the, is what it the is. leading indicator yeah. for success in politics these days because people's BS meters are tuned up so high. Yeah. Um uh now you can be open and they can judge you as yeah. still being full of BS, but but you're 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 a very authentic person. Yeah, same as uh, I was sixty years ago. But 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 she seemed to have a problem sort of opening up. Uh did you ever talk to her about that? Oh many times. Listen, I love listen, I've been friends of the family for a long time. We're very close personal yeah. friends. We vacation together. You know, I just have the I was just at her seventieth surprise party the other day. I love Hillary. Love the president. And 
you know, I'd listen, you know, and listen, in, in the 08 campaign, I kept arguing with the campaign staff, you know, we need to do more things to get her out because I know her so well. And you know her very well, David. And when you're with her, she's got the greatest sense of humor. She's got the greatest laugh. She is a load of fun whenever you're with her. But sometimes that never came across in the campaign, uh, the real genuineness. I mean, every time. Why? I mean, I just, I, hard to answer that. I think it's people's own personality and what they're comfortable doing. Some people, as you say, are more comfortable being out there than others. And I always wish the Hillary Clinton that I knew uh, was the Hillary Clinton that the American public knew. Uh, because, as you know, she is a load of fun, smart as a wit, but just a load of fun. You know, when you're talking to her, all she wants to do is talk about your family. I mean, literally, she can name you all five of my children. No, I look, I've had that experience, yeah. and, she, you know, I, she, she was very kind to uh, me and my family around uh, my daughter's epilepsy, and she was a champion of our cause, yeah. and, uh, and she was very kind, you know, yeah. and uh, very warm. Yeah. But as you say, those qualities that you saw in private uh, were not not as evident in public because she seemed to lock down in front of cameras. Uh, and, I mean, was part of that just uh, calluses that grew up over the years yeah. or, uh, of uh, of being in, in the, the Washington Probably lifelong getting beaten coming? up and part of the process that you actually go through. And, you know, I, listen, get her in situations where people can understand her and relate to her as who she really was. I always advocated the campaign. That is something, those are the types of events we ought to be doing. I mean, she is a load of fun, but it didn't come, you know, come across. And, you know, it's unfortunate. Uh, look what we have in the White House today. It is just really unfortunate what happened in the last campaign. But, you know, she's a very special woman, very bright. And, you know, I spent a lot of years volunteering, helping her. And she would have been a great president. I, I, I agree with what you're saying. You know, I think uh, polit- there's a lot of analogies between political campaigns and sports. Mm-hmm. And if you're a coach of a team, your your mission has to be to try and maximize your players' strengths and minimize their weaknesses, yeah. put them in a position to right. succeed to the extent you have the ability to control uh, what yeah. your candidate is doing. You want to put them in settings that, uh, you know, and hers was not the big rally speeches and so on. Hers were the more more intimate events yeah. where she could uh, relate to people. But there was a, there was something else, which is you you travel your state, and uh, you know that there is a lot of economic anxiety out there. You bet. And it feels like that wasn't as front and center in the campaign as perhaps it should have been. Yep. Yeah, and I've been, and I didn't run the campaign. And no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. No, no, no. I'm just setting it up. I mean, you're, I'm asking you as a master yeah. practitioner. Yeah, and what we did in Virginia, and I'm very proud. We carried Virginia. We were the only Southern state. Yeah, I had told Hillary in January uh, of the election year we'll win the state by over two hundred thousand. We did. We won by about two hundred fifteen thousand. We were able to connect. I mean, listen, we're, people are happy in Virginia. You know, vast majority think the state's heading in the right direction. Well, they think the country's heading in the wrong direction. You know, but I'm ta- asking about the, that campaign. I, I, I'm, I'm giving you your props. You did a good job in Virginia yeah. and, and delivered for her. And uh, But, but what, should there have been more of an emphasis on the economy in the campaign? Yeah, and I've said that very publicly. I think she was talking about the economy, but they never used the paid media to build a whole campaign infrastructure, that that is the message. The other thing is she had 100 ideas, some of which had real merit, yeah. uh, but sometimes had- 100 ideas is less than three. Right. 
And none of his are reality, but you know what? They connected with people who just, you know, they're busting their ass every day working, and they just don't see themselves getting a promotion. They're busting their ass at work every day. They come home, and they're just stuck in the same place. And that's the frustration that people felt, I think, in the last election. And that's what needed to be addressed. And Trump out there with his wall and all the insanity he had. But, you know, when you're angry, someone's putting an opportunity out there or a new idea out there, you know, let's give it a try. There is. Uh, I've heard the same old stuff forever. Let's give it a try. Right. And that, too, was a problem for her because she'd been around for a very long yeah, time. Yeah. And she was kind of associated with Washington, with the status yeah. quo. And people yeah. were looking to uh, uh, extend a, or send a message of real change, sort of yeah. give a, a Washington a kick in the, yeah. kick in the but rear. But it turned out, as we know, David, it was a total lie. I mean, look at it today. Last month, September— is the first month in seven years that we lost jobs in the month. And guess what? Donald Trump was playing golf nine days in the month of September. In Virginia. In Virginia. And he won't campaign, or Eddie Gillespie won't let him campaign. So I keep tweaking him by sending out uh, my own little tweet. You're Eddie Gillespie, so we're going to get to that in a second, is the candidate. He's uh, a Republican candidate for, for governor, governor, and he will not have Trump come in and campaign for him. As I said the other day to the president when I tweeted him, he treats you like you're a communicable disease. You know, it just drives him <laughs> all crazy. It just, you know. Uh, but uh, if the president were here, I should say parenthetically, he'd say, well, we've had robust growth, GDP growth, and the stock, stock market. market's up and yeah. so on. He, you hear that. A yeah. lot from him. And as you know, it takes time. I will give President Obama a tremendous yeah, amount yeah. of credit of eight years. I mean, what they don't give President Obama, which really was unfortunate, was that you think when he came into office, I mean, listen, our economy was on a fiscal cliff. We were about to tip over. You know, the auto industry had been wiped out. I mean, we were really in tough shape. Yeah, I remember, man. I was sitting there I don't have to tell in the you. White House, yeah. and we were worried about the a second for Great Depression. People forgot, and— I mean, we were on the verge of an economic uh, yeah. Armageddon. Yeah. No, I, I, I remember those days very, yeah. very clearly. Um, talk, talk about your governorship as a prelude to talking about where this race is, because a number of the things that you were involved in are yeah. issues uh, yeah. in, in this campaign. Um, one of them uh, was the uh, extension of voting rights to felons, which is now an issue in the campaign. Talk to me about uh, what motivated you uh, to do that. And I want to ask you about a specific issue that has been raised by uh, by Gillespie, the Republican in the campaign against your lieutenant governor, uh, Northam. So when I ran for governor, restoration rights was a big part of my platform. Uh, Virginia has unfortunately a very sordid history as it relates to race relations and giving people back their right to vote. In America, 40 states, David, it's automatic. Automatic. No questions asked. The governor's not involved. It is automatic. Two states, you vote while you're in prison. Vermont and Maine, 14 states you vote the second you walk out of prison. The remaining states, out of prison, done with probation or parole. So, I, when I became governor, I moved incrementally to do what we needed to do. Uh, drug it wasn't offense. just voting rights, right? There were other rights that were... So it's voting rights, serve on a jury, become a notary, not your gun rights. Mm-hmm. So, but 40 states, it's on. But these people are back in society, David. I mean, they're back, they're working, they're paying taxes. And to deny these permanently to disenfranchise is just plain wrong. 
And what had happened in Virginia with and our what you're history, saying is disproportionately those people are uh, people of color. Yeah, mm-hmm. you bet. But if you go back and you look at, uh, you and I could talk forever about the felony threshold in Virginia and all those other issues. But it didn't matter to me what the color of your skin was. This was just wrong. But it was a remnant of Jim Crow. It came in in 1902 on the steps of the Capitol. A state senator by the name of Glass put a poll tax, a literacy test, and a disenfranchisement of felons in the Constitution. And he said at that time, David, I am doing this, quote, to eliminate the darky from being a political factor in Virginia politics. That was his quote. So that's what I was overcoming. And I decided after the incremental moves, I'm just going to do the whole thing. I have the authority. A.E. Dick Howard, the legal scholar who wrote our Constitution in the 70s, said I had the authority as governor to do it. So I did it through an ex- on the spot, on the Capitol, to erase what had been a horrible, sordid history. And It's been I'm- the source of legal wrangling and so on as to what your the issue is did i have the authority as governor Mm -hmm. now i I just told you i went back to georgetown law school i'll be honest with you you know i ran three companies went full-time day you probably wouldn't hire me to be your lawyer but i am a member of the bar however i even knew the sentence the governor has the authority to restore his rights is pretty clear but the republicans sued me took me to supreme court of virginia and unfortunately they're confirmed by the same people who were the plaintiffs and the judge ruled or the supreme court ruled that i didn't have the authority not on a constitutional basis. To do it as a class. Hmm? You, that you didn't have the authority to do it as a class. Yeah. You could individually. He, they said, well, the, the, the constitutional theory, they said, was that no governor had done it before. Well, that's not a constitutional theory. And that's not based in our Constitution. You know, no governor had done it before because this was going to be hard work. In fact, Tim Kaine and Mark Warner both called me after and said, thank you for doing it. That way I know what a lift that was because I was going to get beaten two up. Two former governors. Yeah. yeah, two former governors. But, you know, that's, that's life. I, I'm not afraid, as you said earlier, of leaning in, doing what you think is right. They then came back and said, you have to sign them all individually. Right. I said, fine. I told my uh, staff, get me as many pens as you can. I'm going to start signing them today, all 200,000 of them. Well, they didn't like that, the Republicans, and then they sued me again for contempt of court. Uh, I think I'm the first governor to be sued for contempt of court. And the Supreme Court of Virginia didn't like this. They were getting railed by the editorial pages around the country. What, permanently disenfranchised? And and they ruled with me this time. And now we are about 170,000 folks have their voting rights back. And there's not a day, David, that goes by that I don't have a mother, father, brother, sister. Somebody comes up to me and said, Governor, thank you. I feel like a real citizen again of this Commonwealth. Well, Ed Gillespie isn't saying thank you. Uh, he he's yep. running an ad right now against Northam that uh, features uh, one of the people who, I guess, briefly got uh, their voting rights back, who was convicted in two thousand and one of uh, uh, of a sex offender charge, uh, and then rearrested uh, later after he got his voting rights yep. back. Uh, on a child pornography charge. I guess that hasn't been adjudicated yet. Is that right? Well, so the ad what he's running, which is is false. First of all, in 40 states, David, you couldn't run this ad because it's automatic. Mm-hmm. Just I want your listeners to be very clear. It, there's no discussion. You would auto, This guy would automatically be. So he got his rights back because he'd completed his sentence and probation. He was out. So he got his rights back. He then was rearrested on another charge. And he wasn't convicted of anything yet. He now has been subsequently convicted. Oh, I see, yeah. And he's lost his rights again. So what? But what Ed is trying to scare people, 
and run the most hateful, bigoted, racist campaign I've ever seen. Although we should point out that they were very careful to select someone who isn't African-American yeah, yeah. to feature in the commercial. And they also said it helps it get their gun rights back. That's false. I, as governor, cannot restore anyone's gun rights. Zero authority. It has to be done by a judge and a prosecutor. I have zero say. So the ad's just blatantly false. But, you know, they're running an MS-13 ad, Ed Gillespie. Yeah, I mean, he's ex- gotten in the gutter with Donald the, Trump. They, explain MS-13. They're a, they're a gang that, that has a presence in Virginia. It, is every state probably has some gangs. We have MS-13. It's a, it's a gang from uh, Latin America. Yeah. Latin American. So mm-hmm. he's running this ad. Now, the gang members in the commercial <laughs> are not in Virginia. They are in jail in El Salvador. have never been to Virginia. And the gang they're with is fighting MS-13. So, I mean, his ad, first of all, is not even done correctly. But we don't have, let me be clear. So uh, Ralph Northam wants to have sanctuary cities. We are a Dillon Rule state in Virginia. We do not have sanctuary cities. We are not allowed by law to have sanctuary cities. So the ad is just going to the, the ad. Im- the ad combines these issues and says that Northam su- supports sanctuary cities and therefore he is yeah. coddling. David, we, d- we don't have sanctuary cities. We're not allowed to by law. So the premise of the ad, but this is the Trump, this is Gillespie campaign knowing our economy is doing great. Unemployment's gone from 5.4 all the way to 3.7. My unemployment, initial unemployment claims just hit a 43-year low. I've brought in about $18.6 billion, $6 billion more than any governor before. We're almost at full employment in Virginia. So people are happy with our economy. And Ed can't run on that, so he's got to take the Trump playbook and divide people. Hateful. Which is kind of a, a, a strange thing because Ed hasn't been from the Trump wing of the party. Ed nope. is very, he comes out of the Bush White House. He's been, a, he was someone who spoke to uh, the need for immigration reform. Uh, and so this is a little bit out of character. I get, well, but you've got to own your ads. I'm sorry. And Ed has been a friend of mine for years. I mean, he was chairman of the party when I was chairman. We did a lot of speeches together. He's on the board of my institute, so okay. I know him well. But you own the ads. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is not the Ed Gillespie I knew, but the Ed Gillespie, the, this campaign is racist, bigoted, hurtful. And it shouldn't be allowed, but it's, just, it's the Trump playbook. And as a candidate, you own your ads, plain and simple. Well, uh, I, I have to own mine, too, so we're going to take another short break, okay, and we'll be right back with Terry McCall. <laughs> Fair enough. What, what do you make of the, uh, the indictments this week of Paul Manafort, uh, of his uh, right-hand man, Gates, uh, of this young man who was a policy uh, guy who uh, apparently had some conversation with Russia? Where, where is this all going? Well, clearly the third gentleman who was part of the senior policy foreign policy team um, was trying to set up meetings with the Russians. I think he just became part of the junior foreign policy yeah, team. Senior, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I guess it was a sealed indictment for a month or so. They've yeah. had this for a while. Right. And apparently he's cooperating. I mean, the, the bottom line, the crux of this entire issue is that people were working with a foreign government who – you know, is not working in our best interest to destabilize our elections and to destabilize our country. You know, we'll see where it goes. It's not treason today, but if we do find out that they were working with a foreign actor who wants to destabilize and hurt our country, and ultimately I think that's what uh, Mueller is actually looking at, and that's the place which they're going to get at. But we know what they did in the election. And think of Putin today. He's got to be sitting back in Russia now, 
Look at the destabilization in our country today that's been wrought because of this. You know, we've got issues with NATO today. Look at the issues going on with North Korea. He's got to be kind of won the lottery there. Yeah, I won. I did it. And if we find that any U.S. citizen was involved in this, it's treason. And do you think it's headed that way? I think that what I've always said, and listen, I have no idea, but somebody, David, had to give these people a roadmap of who to talk to, what names to put on memos and things. As you know, Comey said because of that fake memo, but somebody had to know the four names to put on it. So somebody gave them a roadmap to give this and what ads to buy and what to be involved in. I mean, as you know, this is a very sophisticated business. Yeah. And uh, they're not sitting over in Moscow figuring this out. Somebody, I believe, had to give them the roadmap. And you think the president knew about that? I don't think we know today. And, you know, today on today's facts, outside of the, the one gentleman over there, the Manafort and, uh, and the Gates guy, this was all about them getting money and not reporting it on paying taxes. You know, always pay your taxes. I mean, think, I don't know, was it 75 or $95 million? I mean, pay your taxes. You're still going to be in great shape. But it just, uh, it's gluttony. And, but this is just the beginning, I think, of a you know, long series of things that are about to come. But put all that aside for a second. This is about the greatest nation on earth and people actively working to destabilize our government, which hurts people. You, you mentioned Donald Trump. And uh, y- you had... Uh, a, a direct sort of interaction with him uh, recently around another issue that has become yeah. prominent in your gubernatorial race, and that is this horrible, uh, this horrible. Uh, uh, I don't. I, I guess confrontation. I would call it uh, over monuments uh, in Charlottesville uh, and that resulted in the death of of one uh, yeah. of one person, and uh, really. Was a national and two of my state troopers and two of one your was state my pilot, troopers, and the other who was we should not, we sh- who we should not at all uh, forget. That's right. And they and their families. Um, you are initially you 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 didn't lay into the president particularly, uh, but then it became more intense. How would you talk, talk to me about how uh, you felt the president handled that? Well, and I've said this publicly before. I talked to the president that afternoon. He'd called me. I explained to him what was happening in Charlottesville. Neo-Nazis, white supremacists, the alt-right. And we had been tipped off by the FBI. I had known for a month that these folks were coming to do harm. They were told to come with weapons. And these were bad people. And they were coming in from out of state. And I told the president, they are very bad people. We need to condemn them. And I thought at the end of the phone call that I'd had the president in that place. And uh, I believe John Kelly was listening to the phone call. And unfortunately, they delayed the press conference for an hour, and he comes out and does this absolutely— There are bad people on both sides. Sad conference where he said they were both sides. Now, I was there, David. So I went out after the president spoke, and it wasn't both sides. I blamed the people who should have been blamed, the alt-right, the KKK, and the white supremacists. I told them to go home. They're not wanted in Virginia. They pretend they're patriots. They aren't. They're cowards. And they'd come in from out of state. So I condemn them right off. The president should have done that. You know, as your president, as you know, when the president had Charleston or President Clinton had Oklahoma City, there is a time that the nation is looking to their president for words. Why do you think he did not? 
my gut is, and I, you listen, I, I can't answer the question. When I hung up from the phone, we thought we'd had it in a good place because this one about Virginia, this is about a, a nation and who we are. And I think got to the White House, and I think whoever part of that team had him come out and say it. And then he came down a week later and even worse, doubled down at Trump Tower and just condemned the other side. Well, the other side, let's be very clear, the other side was there to protest against neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and the alt-right. I was there. These folks, David, were wearing swastikas and T-shirts with Adolf Hitler's picture on it. I mean, are you kidding me? And I heard what they said and what they spewed, their anger, their hate, and their language against the anti- to the Jewish community. Yeah, anti-Semitism as well. They went, to the, they went in front of one of the synagogues and said, you should all burn back in the Holocaust. I mean, you just can't believe what these people said. Now, they came in from out of state. They left. It, it, they pretended on the least. They didn't even know who Robert E. Lee was. Come on, let's cut to the chase here. But this they is what the, the, but the but the president did shift the discussion or try to shift the discussion to the monuments themselves. And now, uh, but it wasn't the Gillespie campaign has picked up on that. That he'll stand up for uh, for these <laughs> monuments. But let me ask you about that. It, question, Trump did say is, our heritage, like he didn't know he was talking about. What what what? Uh, how do people relate to these? Uh, monuments in uh, in your state and in the South. You know, you probably heard Mitch Landrew's very fine speech mm-hmm. about this down in uh, New Orleans. Yeah. Um, these monuments, some people do associate them with yeah. heritage, but others associate it with mm-hmm. uh, what the Civil War was ultimately motivated yeah. by, which is slavery. Yeah. And I'm going to paraphrase the numbers. Let's say we have 180 statues in Virginia. You know, there was probably one to the War of 1812, two to World War One, maybe two to World War Two. The American Revolution, I think we have two. You know, 90% are Confederate monuments. We were the capital of the Confederacy, Virginia, mm-hmm. Richmond. Um, many of them came in long after David, as you know, had nothing to do with the Civil War. They came in just as the rebel flag came in during the 50s. Uh, during massive resistance issues and so forth. In Virginia today, and the point that I've tried to make, first of all, localities make the decision what they're going to do. It's very much defined in the law uh, what they can do and not do. I think a majority, if you look at the polling data, says today that, you know, they just leave them alone. I want what, you, what I want you elected officials focused on is the living right now. How about school funding and things like that? But, you know, I view them as a very divisive symbol. I took executive action a couple of years ago and took the rebel flag, the Confederate flag, off of the license plates. I did that. I had the authority to do that as governor. I don't have the authority to take any monuments down. Mm-hmm. But I did take it down because it was a sign of divisiveness. And to the African-American community, as you say, slavery, hatred, bigotry. Um, so I took the actions that I could. I think what most people in this debate going on today – you know, they want to first, before we talk about spending millions on monuments, they want to make sure, indeed, that we are taking care of the people and the children today, making sure they're all getting a quality education. But Ralph has said that he wants to see the monuments come down. Ralph but Northam, yeah. He, he, Ralph Northam running for governor. But he can say whatever he wants. It is up to the ones that are state-controlled. It is up to the General Assembly. The governor has no say on it. Uh, and. I presume you view the invocation of this in the campaign as another element of uh, appeals to division? Yes. Yes. You bet. And how effective has this been? Because there is this sense that that, uh, that the Gillespie campaign has picked up 
some momentum. Northam's been leading uh, yeah. along. Is that over overdone? I think it's overdone. I think Ralph. I mean, you know, forget polls. You and I for a long time been seeing polls. Quinnipiac right. today had Ralph up thirteen points. I don't yeah. believe it. Right. It's it's an off year. We have elections every year in Virginia. And remember, I broke a 40-year trend to get elected. Whoever wins the White House, the other party wins the governor's mansion. You know, it's hard. The turnout goes from the high 70s down to the low 40s. So you can't take anything for granted. But people are happy with the economy. Uh, Do you think Democrats – I think turnout is the big issue in that race. It's 100% of it. Do you think Democrats will come out? I do. I think for a lot of reasons. One, every poll shows they're vastly happy with the state. Uh, they like me. They like Ralph. They like Mark. Our our approval ratings are high. I was at 56 the other day. Trump was at 31. So they're happy with the state where it is. They don't like what I believe is Ed Gillespie's bigoted, hurtful, racist, bigoted campaign that he's running. Now, his whole goal is to try and get parts of rural Virginia to come out in a sort of like a presidential Trump year well, the it's, fact is that they didn't particularly like Gillespie. He almost lost the primary oh, because they viewed him votes. as too moderate, too establishment. Uh, yeah. Can he— Corey can, Stewart, who was the chair of the Trump campaign, who got mm-hmm. fired for being too extreme. Imagine that being too extreme for the Trump campaign. He got fired, almost be dead. But I think it was just a couple thousand votes in the primary. So he's trying to, he's trying to energize that base. Will that base come out? I'm very optimistic. All I can tell you, you and I will talk uh, in about nine days, and I believe I'll make yes, a this prediction. this is all recorded, so your prediction is now a matter of public record. Okay, very good. And when will this run? This will run uh, uh, the Thursday before the election. Okay, great. So I'm predicting we win all three statewides. The other nice thing is I think we can pick up four to eight, maybe ten House of Delegate seats. And this has been a source of frustration for you because you've, yeah. you've tried to win – uh, control a legislature back. It's been uh, it's been a uphill fight gerrymandered seats, but I'm very proud of the Democrats. So in my House of Delegates, it's 66 Republicans, David, out of 100. So I also have another record. I have vetoed more bills than any governor in Virginia history, and I'm very proud. 66 Republicans. If they get 67, I got overridden. I never lost one vote. I'm 120 to zero to stop the really anti women you know, anti-LGBT bashing, anti-environment, I was able to veto all those bills. And that's why Ralph Northam's election is so important. They are going to be, till we fix gerrymandered districts, you know, you have almost a possible time of winning these seats. Now, there are 17 seats that Hillary carried in the last presidential election that we have candidates in every one of those 17 seats. So those are a real opportunity. So what you're but, saying is that... The, the- because there'll be a redistricting on the on the watch of this next yeah. governor, that'll be yeah. this will be that's right particularly important. important. So talk about Donald Trump more broadly. How do you assess him? I mean, let's stipulate your yeah. antipathy toward his views and his yeah. approach. But how, what is the Trump phenomenon and 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 assess him as a as a politician? One politician assessing another. Well, good question. So first of all, let us not forget he wiped out how many primary opponents? Yeah, I mean, S- 16. Yeah. yeah, okay, let's be clear on that. And then, you know— Were you surprised when that was happening? I was very surprised. I always thought every day something new would come out, and that, of course, the attacks on John McCain, the Billy Bush tape. I mean, every day, you know, attacking our generals, the worst army in the world, the worst military. I mean, every day I thought something new would do it. 
um, you know, uh, he didn't win the popular vote, but I mean, he did what but he, he did. He did say win the early vote. on that he could go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot, shoot someone, and his yeah. supporters would stick with him. That seems to be true. Yeah, I mean, I, he hasn't shot anybody. Let's be clear; I'm not accusing yeah. him of that. I think it's fading. I think people with their frustrations, you and I talked about before, the folks who are working so hard and not getting promoted. I think they were looking for hope, and I think that is really that hope. Uh, is evaporating. They're tired of it. And listen, I compete on a global basis. I mean, I'm the most traveled governor in the United States of America. I just did my 34th trade mission. I head off to the big global climate summit in uh, Norway next week on a trade mission. I now have to spend, I've been to dozens of countries. I, you know, I just announced $91 billion of ag and forestry last year, up 32% since I became governor. I'm selling products. I now have to spend a half an hour, David, with all these world leaders and businesses around the globe, trying to explain what's going on in Washington, trying to explain Trump. I'm, I'm, and what do you tell them? Well, interesting. And, and this is bad for America because our international prestige is down. What I tell them, and I just completed, I served as the chairman of the National Governors Association. I changed and we worked hard to change uh, how we did business. I brought Prime Minister Trudeau in, first time we've had. We're having world leaders come meet directly with governors now. This right. is the first so what time. So what are you telling them? Do business directly with it. Forget the federal government. It is, it is chaos. Uh, if you want to get things done in the country, I mean, look what's happening on climate change. He pulled us out of the Paris Agreement, and I was very proud. I was the first governor the next day. I said, I'm going to do it our- ourselves. What's happening now with the governors, interesting story for federalism because this has never happened before because the actions of our president, the governors are stepping into the void. We're going to get to the same place, David, but we're going to do it with the governors doing in our own states on climate change to deal with these issues. This has never happened. On trading, I'm out there doing business. I, do, I tell world leaders all the time. Come, you want to do a deal? Come directly and do deals with the governors. They have lost faith. They don't know what to think of Trump. But what, what, but what do you uh, attribute? He seems to, he's hanging in there. It's not a very high number, but he's hanging in there in sort of the mid, th- mid to high 30s in terms of uh, <laughs> approval. He's got an 80% approval rating among Republicans. It's been, to say the least, a tumultuous time. So why is it? What is it that... That yeah. causes his core. And he was at 38 today, lowest he's ever been NBC today. But I think our country, unfortunately, is very fractured. He's going to have that core base, let it be 30, 32% of those folks, no matter what he does, they are going to stay with him. They believe him when they say he's going to build this wall. Um, you know, he's not going to build the wall. Let me be very clear. It's not going to happen. But, you know, they believe it. And... We've got to bring this country back together. I mean, as you know, President Obama had to deal with this for eight years dealing with the Congress. You know, nobody worked harder to try and bring people together. I mean, he literally put his hand out constantly on the budget deals with with Boehner and others. But, you know, and I, I bring this all back to the root of the problem, I believe, is these gerrymandered districts. The problem we have in America today is you cannot lose a general election. Yeah, it's deeper than that, though. I mean, it's social media. It's it's frankly money and the amount of money that goes into uh, sort of uh, you know camp uh, campaigns of, of of character assassination against various public officials uh, around issues. It's there's a lot of stuff. Uh, it's a tough environment. Yeah, it's a tough environment. But I, honestly, I you know. 
And that's why, you know, Nancy's out helping. She realized, no matter how much money you have, David, if a line is drawn in a district that you can't win. Yeah, no, no, no question about it. You can't. Let, let me ask you this. You said earlier in another context that people uh, uh, people look at uh, office holders and say, why not me? Do you look at Trump and say, why not me? <laughs> I it's a good question. I hope that Trump is not an inspiration for anybody to want to be president of the United States. Well, are you inspired to want to be president of the United States? No, I, what I've said very publicly, David, I want to finish up here strong. We've got a great record going in Virginia. The taxpayers are paying me. And I leave on January 13th, and I'm running through the tape. I don't walk as... Uh, I'm sure you don't, but that's three months from now. Yeah. You were just in Ohio last night. You're traveling around the country. You're obviously yep. speaking. Uh, you're you're clearly thinking about it. What I'm thinking about, honestly, and I'm a very straight shooter. I'm not. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing in 2020. What I am going to be doing next year is doing the national redistricting, working with Eric Holder and the mm-hmm. president and others. I am going to take a lead on winning these 36 governors' races. So I am going to be all over America next year, traveling to help our governors. Because forget 2020. It drives me wild when Democrats talk about 2020. Because if we don't have a successful night in 2018, and we are going to get redistricted, and they're going to draw the lines, David. Our party and the principles we care about are going to be wiped out from 2021 to 2030. I'm telling you. I I, I hear you. But I'm just asking you as a straight shooter, uh, are you – Would let's put it this way. (laughs) You wouldn't rule out the notion that you might be a candidate in 2020. I never rule anything out. You know, I love my life. I've had such a fascinating life. You know, I'd love to be pope. You know, I'd like to be, you know, well, let's, a wide let's stipulate that further. that is not, not likely to happen. It's probably not. For likely. a wide range of reasons. But I don't take reasons. anything off the table. <laughs> but, uh, well, you never take anything off the table. But, you know, if you would have asked me, you know, 50 years ago that I'd be sitting here today, the experiences I've had as a young man, the businesses I've started, the politics I've done, the friends I've you just wouldn't think it. You know, I love life, as you can tell. I love every moment of it. I'm the ultimate optimist. You know, I sing the Star Spangled Banner in the shower. I love life. And we'll see where life takes you. Yeah. And I tell, I give a lot of graduation speeches, David, and I tell young people all the time, too many of them set a course. And I tell them, don't do that. Yeah, because I opportunities agree. will come. And if, you're, if I hadn't left Georgetown Law School to take this risk on a, a candidate, a president they didn't think could be reelected, I wouldn't be sitting here today, David. You just don't know. So any Georgetown students who are listening now, take that to heart. <laughs> you get a good offer. There you go. Take, take it. A, take, Anymore. Take it, yeah. But enjoy life. You live once. Terry Sleep Mc- when you're dead. <laughs> Sleep when you're dead. What better message to leave on yeah, than that? Terry McAuliffe, thank Thanks, you David. for being here and for being at the Institute of Politics. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.